Let's pray as we come to God's word. Oh Lord, we ask not out of mere habit, but out of genuine need, for we are weak. Give us humble hearts and listening ears. Be kind enough to rebuke us, merciful enough to forgive us, strong enough to change us, and most of all, grant to us the eyes and the lips that we might see and savor Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. We'll be looking this evening from the book of Exodus, chapter 16, Exodus chapter 16. There was a book that came out about 10 years ago by Jerry Bridges. I'm sure many of you have read some of the fine books that Jerry Bridges wrote over the course of his life. This one was called Respectable Sins, Confronting the Sins We Tolerate. And it was a very good book, and that is an excellent title. Because there are sins that we tend not to tolerate in the church. You just imagine in your community or in your covenant groups if somebody shared that they had just this past week been stealing, lying, violent, committing adultery. There would be great shock and horror throughout the room, and rightfully so. Not saying we should tolerate those sins. But then he says there are other sins that feel more respectable. You know, good, respectable people do them all the time. Sins like anger, envy, pride, impatience, worry. And then we add to that list grumbling. Grumbling is without a doubt one of those respectable sins. As I said last week, grumbling is one of those sins we universally dislike when we see in other people. We don't like to be around grumbling, complaining people, and yet we invariably find ways to approve it when we see it in our own lives. Now let me make this distinction clear from the very beginning, and I tried to belabor this point last week as well. When I say grumbling, I don't mean groaning, lamentation, disappointment, or even all sorts of criticism because I know that in a room this size, there will be people going through very difficult seasons of their life, crying out to God and to others. And and the last thing that we need is that you leave and you feel like, well, I need to just pretend that everything's good, just stiff upper lip, no problems here. No, that's not what we mean. The Bible is full of examples of godly people who say, I'm scared, I'm hurt, I'm tired, I'm sad, I'm upset. I wish things were different than the way they are. So a grumble is not a humble cry for help. It's a complaint from those who think they know better than God how to run the universe. I said last week, a groan is sort of hands facing upward, palms empty, saying, oh God, why? Where a grumble is a clenched fist raised toward the heaven, oh God, why? This hurts, but I'm ready to receive from God's hand whatever he would have. That's a godly groan. A grumble, on the other hand, says, this is terrible, and I am ready to rebel against God for it. We grumble all the time. I am willing to bet that most of us have grumbled today. I bet that some of you even had grumbling in the car on the way here, just a guess. 
We grumble. We grumble to our parents. We don't like food. We don't like the curfew. We don't like we have to clean our room or do our homework or take a nap or that we have to share or that we can't go to the movie or we can't go out on a date. It's not just kids. Parents, we grumble about our kids. They don't listen. They whine. They're ungrateful. They don't follow through. We may grumble about our church, about the weather, about sports, about traffic, about things that break, about people that are late, about jobs that are hard. We grumble all the time. I think of the the phrase that a good friend of mine used about me a few years ago, and I'd like to think that I've outgrown this, but you could talk to my family, and I probably haven't. He said, Kevin, you know, sometimes you can be compliant but complaining. So you sort of just, you know, go along and do it, but you sort of give off the air of, I can't believe I have to do this. I don't wish to wear that well. In the early days, as a free people, the Israelites were beset by this sin of grumbling. And it's often our besetting sin as well. Follow along. I'm going to start by reading just the first eight verses. Exodus 16. They set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Why is grumbling such a serious sin? Let me give you three reasons. Number one, grumbling distorts the past. Grumbling distorts the past. Remember, they lingered by the palm trees at Elim for several weeks, but they could not stay there. And so verse one, they set out from there. And they went into the wilderness of sin, which has nothing to do with our English word sin. It just happens to be one of those coincidences that what they did in the wilderness of sin was a lot of sinning. But it is just from the region of Sinai, and so it's called the wilderness of sin. They left exactly one month since they had left Egypt. Numbers 33.3 tells us they set on the 15th day of the first month from Egypt. And now this is the 15th day of the second month. Another wilderness for the Israelites, a month into their freedom from Egypt, and suddenly the life as a slave people looks mighty good. They say in these famous words in verse 3, we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. I just notice here they're longing for meat, not vegetables. 
meat pots. They had regular meals to eat. Now, they may have looked in fondness with their life in Egypt, but during their time in Egypt, they were singing a different tune. In chapter 2, 23, it says, During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. So they were singing a different tune when they were slaves in Egypt. That's why I said grumbling distorts the past. They have a distortive view of what life was like. And so they say in verse 3, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in Egypt. If it wasn't such a serious sin, it would almost be comical. You can just hear them sort of, you know, bottom lips sticking out, folding their hands. God doesn't care for us. Wish we would have died in Egypt. Nobody loves us. Nobody's watching out for us. That's what they're like. They're like children. Wish we would have died there. Phil Riken in his commentary points out that instead of saying, give us liberty or give us death, like Patrick Henry, they cry out, give us bondage or give us death. Sometimes all we want to do is go back. And we don't really remember what it was actually like. I read a book uh, a year or so ago, a very interesting book, not a Christian book, but it's called The Fractured Republic by Yuval Levine. And he's talking about politics and uh, our politics of dysfunction and whatever your political predilections. It's an interesting book because he has this phrase. He says, we are in politics blinded by nostalgia. And so he argues that both on the left and on the right, people are blinded by nostalgia. That they think, maybe on the left, they think, oh, if we could just get back to the 60s. And maybe if you're on the right, you think if we could get back to the 80s or the Reagan revolution. We tend to have these these blind spots, this nostalgia that we think, oh, those good old days were always so good. He said, we're blinded by it. We don't remember what day in and day out life was really like. And the way we've sort of framed it now in our mind's eye is not really accurate. A golden age never did exist except before the sin in the Garden of Eden. Now, some days are better than others, that's for sure. And sometimes we want to go back to things that may have been better. But the good old days weren't always so good. And if you tend to complain about everything now, chances are you complained about everything back then. Even when you're saying, well, that's when it was really good. Remember, oh, those were the good old days. I can find that even sometimes in, in my own heart, just thinking, kids these days. <laughs> I'm only 40, but still, if you were one to complain now, you probably were one to complain back then. Grumbling distorts the past, and we see it through these rose-colored glasses. Oh, if we can only go back. Grumbling is also a serious sin, number two, because it exaggerates the present. It distorts the past and it exaggerates the presence. Look at the second half of verse 3. He says, you have brought us out, this is their complaint to Moses, to kill the whole assembly with hunger. This is again the second time they've accused Moses of trying to kill them. They are accusing their deliverer of being a murderer. Okay, we've forgotten what happened with the plagues and all that you risked to come back to be our deliverer. No, you brought us out here because you want to kill us. Now we'll find in the next chapter, 17, that they still have animals with them. They could have 
killed some of their livestock for food. They could have gone to some of those animals to drink milk. They could have made cheese. They could have had something to feast on. So we we are talking really about wants more than absolute needs. I remember as a child learning quickly that when I was hungry before dinner, it wasn't a good idea to use the phrase, Mom, I'm starving. Because that quickly got a very lengthy lecture about famine in different parts of the world and children who would be grateful for any of the scraps that were rummaging around in our trash can and et cetera, et cetera, people who hadn't eaten for weeks. And it was true. We weren't really starving. At least I wasn't in my family. Well, this is the Israelites' problem. We're starving. We're going to die. You're going to kill us. Exaggeration. Now, there's the, you know, hyperbole, and sometimes some of us talk and very exact. It's not always wrong, but listen, it can be a serious sin when we use exaggeration to slander others or to deceive ourselves. And there are those people that you know you, you, you never can quite take what they're saying at face value because their problems are always mountainous and their successes are always rapturous and you find yourself constantly saying, is that what really happened? Is that what she really said? Sometimes we fall into this trap. We use words like always. You always do this. Never. That was kind of premarital counseling 101, just common grace, communication techniques. Don't use those words always and never, unless you really, really mean them. When we grumble, we tend to distort the present. And we think that this momentary affliction where it is always the way it's been. And you never do anything for me. That's what these sinners are thinking. They've distorted the past and they've exaggerated the present. And then third, grumbling dishonors God. Dishonors God. The whole congregation grumbled against Moses and Aaron. We see that in verse 2. Not just some of the people, but all the people, the whole congregation. Calvin says, Moses says, not that some of the people only murmured, but that they were all gathered into mobs as in a conspiracy, or at any rate, as they were arranged by hundreds and thousands, that they murmured with one consent. It was their besetting sin. Remember, they grumbled when Moses came to save them. Didn't go as they had hoped. They grumbled at the banks of the Red Sea. Well, now what? He brought us out here to die. We're stuck. They grumbled at Mara. We saw last week when the water was bitter and they had been thirsty for three days. And now they grumble a month into the journey because they are hungry. This is a nation of whiners. Let's not be a congregation of whiners. Ultimately, Their grumble was not against Moses and Aaron, but against God. That's why grumbling is so serious. You see this in verses 7 and 8. Moses says, what are we? He asked twice. Okay, who are we? Don't shoot the messenger. We're just trying to lead this this group of rabble-rousers, some two million of you. And then finally at the end of verse 8, your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. I don't know what that does to you. That, that kind of hits me. Because I like to think, no, my grumbling is just, it's because my, my kids are just kind of crazy or because someone didn't understand me or because this was a hard week at work or just 
you know, our country's having a hard time. We have all sorts of reasons, ways to, to understand it, ways to explain it, ways to justify it to ourselves. And here, Moses comes at us with this very hard truth. Now, wait a second, wait a second. Underneath all of that, when you're going on complaining, whining, grumbling, it's, it's not about mom and dad, ultimately. It's, it's not about your kids. It's not about your neighbor. It, it, it's a heart attitude toward God Almighty. God, I don't think you know what you're doing in my life. You, you must be asleep today. You must be taking a break because do you see what's going on? This is not what I ordered up. God, do you know what you're doing? That's a grumbling spirit. You note that Moses and Aaron wisely don't personalize it. We shouldn't personalize it either. No, we take criticism, fair-minded criticism to heart, and we want to change. But so much of grumbling that may come your way is really grumbling against God. It's bound to happen. They said, what are we, Moses and Aaron? We're following the fiery cloud like everyone else. We're just telling you what God tells us. Okay, we're living under the same word. A complaining spirit indicates that something is not right in our relationship with God. You're not taking care of me. You're not looking out for me. You're playing golf with the angels up there and I'm miserable here on earth and you don't even care. The problem with complainers is that they don't really trust that God is big enough to help or good enough to care. That's the problem with grumbling. That's why this cannot just be another respectable sin. It gets to the very heart of our identity and our lack of trust in the living God. So what's the answer? Follow along as I read the rest of the chapter. Verse 9, Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered, some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over. Whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it out till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil. And all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. 
Moses said, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it. But on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generation so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. And omer is the tenth part of an ephah. We saw three problems with grumbling. It distorts the past, it exaggerates the present, and it dishonors God. Now, let's see three lessons to overcome this respectable sin of grumbling. Three lessons here. Number one, if we are to overcome this sin of grumbling, we must believe, number one, you can trust God to provide. You can trust God to provide. That's what we see in this whole business Familiar to some of us since Sunday school days of the quail and the manna. By the time we get to verse 12, it looks like the Israelites have taken a step in the wrong direction. And they need to learn again who Yahweh is. Remember, Exodus is about the God who makes himself known. And he's been doing that to, to Moses from the burning bush and through the plagues and through the redemption from slavery well, now they need to know again who is the Lord their God. That is what it's like as God's people. Constantly we need to be reminded, not just of little facts and tidbits, but ultimately who is this God that we profess to worship? And the God that we profess to worship is a God who provides. He said, I'll give you quail for a day and then manna for 40 years. Look at verse 15. You may see if you're reading in the ESV, the people of Israel saw it. They said to one another, what is it? If you look in your Bible, there's a little footnote. You go to the bottom of the page and it says, or it is manna. The Hebrew is that strange phrase, man who. So we know it as manna. In Hebrew, they could have been saying it is manna, or what is it? Or one scholar says that this phrase could be roughly translated, whatchamacallit. They look at it and say, whatchamacallit? And they said, it's, it's manna, man who? And omer is a little more than two liters. So you picture a two liter of, I almost said pop, but soda. And uh, that's what it's filled with, this manna. Psalm 78 says, the Lord sent them the bread of the angels, rained down meat on them like dust, flying birds like the sand of the seashore. This is a miraculous provision. This is not just some sort of plant lice, as some scholars have argued, or insect excrement, or lichen growing on rocks. I haven't eaten much of any of those things, but I doubt they taste like wafers with honey. No, this is a miracle. The manna only appeared when Moses said it would appear. 
It was not interrupted by weather or by seasons. It was enough that came down to feed millions of people. There was twice as much on the sixth day. If you tried to keep it for yourself, it started to stink. The other nations around them did not have it. And once they got to the edge of Canaan, it stopped. So clearly, this is not just some natural phenomenon. This is a miraculous provision from the Lord. Think of what an expression of patience this is by the Lord. After all that he's done, and it takes a month, you would have thought, you know, 400 years in slavery. That would have, you know, bought maybe four or five months or years maybe of some, you know, thanksgiving and gratitude. At least we're not in Egypt. You think they would have been, you know, nudging each other. Hey, it could be worse. At least we're not slaves, but that didn't even last a month. And they're saying to each other, man, we, it was really a sweet deal in Egypt. We, we, got the, we had food, we had neat pots. Oh, that was so good, so great. They've forgotten. And now they don't trust the Lord who did all of this to set them free, that he really has the power and the compassion to provide for them. It takes a lot of trust, especially for an agricultural people. We're so wired to just, you know, you need food, you just go and you go to one of the grocery stores and there it is. But they had to depend upon seasons and harvests and they couldn't just run to the Publix or Harris Teeter or Food Line or wherever and just go stock up and raid the, the stores of milk and bread when the snow comes, as I understand happens. Looking forward to it. We're already stocking up for those lean winter months. They didn't have any of that. It wasn't like, well, you know, worse come to worse, we'll have to go out tomorrow to get food. They didn't know where it was coming. So they had to trust. They had to trust that God would provide. And isn't it just like God to teach them this lesson in the wilderness? I'm not going to give you a year's worth of manna. That's what we would want. Okay, God, this is a good deal. You're giving us this, you know, these graham crackers in the morning. Give us a year. And let us just plan ahead and we'll have it. So, no, I'll give you today. What about tomorrow? Well, I'll give you tomorrow, tomorrow. And then what about after that? Well, when we get there, you'll have more. You have to trust me. Surely Jesus had this on his mind when he taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. We'd like a lifetime supply of bread. Jesus says, no, daily. He'll give you what you need for tomorrow. Jesus said, do not worry about tomorrow, saying, what shall we eat? We don't believe that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. We have a hard time believing that. We love the verse, we love the hymn, but it's hard for us to believe that his mercies are new every morning. In the human heart, we want to see, we demand sometimes a blueprint for grace. God, I do trust you, but I'd like to see your plan of grace for my life. Just give me maybe a decade. Let me see what the next decade of your grace looks like and I'm, I'm good to go. But God doesn't work that way. His mercies are new every morning. What is it when we're anxious? Anxiety is living out the present before it gets here. What if this happens? What will, we, what, what will I do then? What will I do then? 
And one of the profound lessons that we learn from Jesus and from Lamentations, the mercies of the Lord are new every morning. And so many of us want to run ahead of God's mercies. We want to say, well, what will happen then? What will happen then if, if, I, if I lose that loved one? What will happen then if I get that diagnosis? What will happen if that never gets better? What will happen then if I don't have a job a month from now, uh, 10 weeks from now? And we run ahead and we want the Lord's mercies now when he says, no, my mercies will be new every morning. And when you get to that morning that you're anxious about today, I will give you the grace that you need then, but I'm not, I'm not giving it to you now. I give you the grace today to get through today. And when we start getting anxious, we start rushing ahead. What if, what if, and all the grace that we'll need a day from now and 10 years from now, and God says, no, part of following me is to trust that I'll give you the manna when you need it. And I'll give you the food, and I'll give you the resources, and I'll give you the prayers when you need it. Can we trust the Lord to provide? We grumble when we don't really believe that. Here's the second lesson for us. We trust God to provide, and then second, we trust God enough to rest. You say, what does the Sabbath, because there's a lot of instructions here about the Sabbath, what does the Sabbath have to do with grumbling? Some of us think the Sabbath just produces more grumbling. All the things that we can't do or we're not supposed to do. It just seems like a day for grumbling. Well, we grumble because we don't trust. And one of the ways we show that we trust and that we are learning to trust is by learning to rest one day in seven. Probably the same people scurrying around on the Sabbath were those hoarding their manna on the other days of the week, thinking, hmm, God's given us a lot here, but I need to be smarter than God. So, Honey, just, just tuck away a little bit of this manna for tomorrow. No, I got some extra. There's more laying around, okay? We're full for today, but then we'll be sure that we have some more manna tomorrow. Just hide it away. And what happened to the manna? It stank. It putrefied. You couldn't eat it the next day. It wasn't meant to be saved because God had more grace for that next day. And so when they came to the Sabbath, said, okay, this is the one day of the week. On the sixth day, you go out and you get twice as much because you're not going to do it on the seventh day. I'm going to give you what you need on the seventh day, on the sixth day, because the seventh day is going to be a holy day, a day of worship, and a day of rest. When we get to the Ten Commandments, Lord willing, we'll talk more about this commandment of the Sabbath, because there are elements of continuity and discontinuity from the Old to the New Covenant. But it would be surprising if this Sabbath principle were completely eliminated in the New Testament because it is rooted in creation. And here we see it present even before the formal giving of the law. So you can't just say Sabbath is just a Mosaic command. It's here even before the law comes down at Sinai. So what does this mean for us? Well, we don't need to or have to get into a minute list of all of the, the commandments you can and what you can and shouldn't do on the Lord's day. That was perhaps a problem of generations gone by. But I think it's safe to say that the number of people here, myself included, who are in danger of legalism on the Lord's day is very small. That is not the danger that most Western Christians fall into. Undue scrupulosity is not our danger. Our biggest danger is to neglect this gift 
that God means to give us. Remember Jesus said the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. God says, I've given you a day of get to, and the rest of the week is have to. Okay, this is a gift. This is meant for you, for your good, if you would learn what it is to rest. Some of us who are just wired to work, 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 just very hard all the time. What's the hardest work to do? Rest. Now, I don't, that's not the same as laziness. That's not the same as inactivity. But actual, purposeful rest. But God means it for our good. About three years ago or so, I started to get uh, more serious about exercising again. It was something that I had done and did sports, not very well, but I did them in high school and in college. Then, you know, you just get on with the rest of your life and you feel like, yeah, you're going to feel good forever. So I decided uh, about three or four years ago, I really was going to get into exercising again. And so what do I do as someone when I I think, I really want to get good at exercise. I read books about exercise. So I have read dozens of books about swimming and biking and running because that's what I like to do. I like to do those things. I like to read books about them. Here's one of the things that I should have known, but in really dozens of books has been pounded away over and over in every single book is they'll have a chapter on rest. These aren't Christian books, just exercise books. A chapter on recovery and rest. It makes sense. People who are motivated enough to read books about exercise are probably people who are you know, really intent and they want to do their best and they want to push themselves. And so, so often, the biggest problem is not to go and get it done, but it's Injury, it's overdoing it. And whether that's you in exercise, or probably most of us not, but just us in life, it's true. And so I'd read these books and I'd learn about the science behind exercise. Did you know your body grows and develops and builds muscles, not when you're exercising, but when you rest? Some of you, you already knew that. I had to learn this again. When you're, when you're exercising, when you're, you know, working your heart or your muscles, it's breaking down the little fibers in your muscles and taxing your heart and your lungs. That's not when you improve. When you improve is when your body said, okay, I did that. That was hard. If you're going to do that again, I better get a little stronger. And so it's only when you rest that muscles get bigger and more blood flows I was reading one article not long ago. It had six training laws from professional athletes. Rule number one, number two, and number three was you are going way, way too hard. And rule number six was you need to sleep more. I was very encouraged to read some of these endurance athletes. They averaged more than 10 hours of sleep. Some of you are thinking, I knew I missed my calling. Because they understand you can't just push your body to the limit all the time and never rest. God gives us this gift of Sabbath if we will trust him enough to rest. I believe when it comes to to sleep and rest, you can borrow time, but in the end you can't steal it. By that I mean you can... You know, get five hours of sleep one night. You can go on a sleep deficit. You can, you can last for a while and, you, and moms have to do this and you have to get up for the baby and you have to nurse. And you, you get by, you can borrow, but in the end you can't steal it. 
Because you will crash, you, you will get sick, you will see that you're not invincible. When I was a freshman in college, I thought that what you did when you went to college is you just stayed up, you ordered pizza after midnight, you ate that thing, you got up and you did every last thing you could do and I was staying up till one, I was getting up at six in the morning and just going, going, going and by the time I got to the end of my first semester, I was absolutely devastated and sick and was lying, almost passed out in the infirmary at the school. You just can't go, go, go. God gives us this Sabbath day for our good. One day in seven where you are meant to experience the gift of worship and rest. Here's some questions you might want to ask yourself. Do I use Saturday to prepare for Sunday? This won't be a day of worship and rest if we we just start thinking about it at 8.30 on Sunday morning. Am I using Sunday to get ahead or to get a break? How about this question? Can others see that this is a day with unique priorities and special blessings for me and my family? Or does it look to all the world that this day is no different for us? This is a day where you say, I don't have to keep up. I don't have to put out. I don't have to scramble. It's a symbol of resting from our labors and resting in Christ for the eternal rest yet to come. The Lord convicted me of this when I was a student way back when. And those of you who are students or will be soon, you can mark this. I don't know if you can make an absolute law of it, but it served me very well. So you know what? I'm not going to do studies and homework on Sunday. And it made Sunday the happiest day of the week. And I was free to, to, to go to church and to come back to church. And I was free to go on a walk. And I was free to read something that I wanted to read. And I was free to throw the frisbee around. I was free to have a leisurely lunch. Because I didn't have in my mind this day, okay, this is where I'm catching up on all the things. And I loved it. And I think as much as possible, you will too. Here's the final point. So if we are to overcome grumbling, we must trust that the Lord will provide. And we must trust him enough to rest one day in seven. And then finally, we need to trust God now and forever. That's what the last paragraph is about. As Moses, and sort of looking forward, we're kind of fast forwarding the clock to see some things that will later happen because they're at the beginning of the journey. They haven't even got to Sinai, and all of a sudden Moses is reflecting that they'll get manna for 40 years. So he's writing on the back end of some things that have yet to happen. And he tells them, You need to place some of this manna in a jar before the Lord. So it goes in the jar, which goes in the ark, and the ark hasn't been built yet. We're taking things out of order as Moses is reflecting on it. It goes before the testimony, either meaning the ark itself or there next to the tablets of stone, which were written, that may be the testimony. But there it is. Hebrews 9.4 tells us in the ark were three things, Aaron's staff which budded, the jar of manna, and the tablets of the covenant, that is, the Ten Commandments. In other words, 40 years of miraculous provision deserves to be commemorated. It was their way of saying, we will always remember how he provided for us. We'll put it there in the ark to remember, now and forever. The only problem, of course, is we don't have the ark. Sorry, Indiana Jones, that wasn't true. They didn't really find the ark. 
But we found Jesus. John chapter 6, the Jews come and they are demanding a sign. They said to Jesus, what works do you perform? Okay, prove yourself. You seem to be a big shot. And they say, our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And you can see themselves sort of posturing there with Jesus. You seem to be a big shot. You, who we know your, your relatives, and we know where you come from, little itty-bitty Nazareth. Okay, if you're really somebody special, the word, give us a sign. And just to up the ante, they say, now remember some of the signs that we're used to seeing. Remember manna, 40 years in the wilderness? That is how we know that we're dealing with a real prophet. So Jesus, what do you have for us? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And then they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Now, they're, 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 they're still not quite getting it. They're hearing Jesus' words. They're not getting his meaning. Okay, all right, we want that bread. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So when we get on the other side of the Sabbath, we get on the other side of Israel grumbling in the wilderness. We get on the other side of the ark, lest you're tempted to think, well, those are some interesting Old Testament lessons. Jesus really brings it home to us. And he says, do you trust that I have more than enough to provide for all your needs? I am the bread of life. If you come to me, you won't be hungry. If you drink from me, you won't be thirsty. Isn't that what we want? Isn't that what we really want? To know day after day, okay, it, it's enough. I, I, I'm, I'm not going to be hungry. I'll have enough to drink because Jesus will, will provide it. And I say, well, wouldn't it be nice if Jesus could just physically give us that food, physically give us that water, but he gives us something far better. He gives us himself. He gives us the truth of his word. He gives us the, the realization, if we have faith to accept it, that if you belong to me, I have new mercies for you every morning. Every morning to know that you're a child of God. Every morning to know that you're forgiven. Every morning to know that you can put aside the crazy rat race that we live in, saying, I gotta prove that I'm a good enough mom, that I'm a good enough pastor, that I'm good enough, that I can do this. Okay, here's another day to try to prove to the whole world that I have enough followers on Facebook and that I'm worth something and I'm valuable for something. And Jesus says, you're gonna be hungry. That's never gonna feed you. Come to me. All of that proving, all of that striving, I will give you rest for your sin-sick, weary souls. Day after day, not for 40 years, but for a lifetime and for all eternity, if you will feast on me. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift, most precious gift, this indescribable gift of your Son, 
Help us, Lord. Give, give us just what we need. Perhaps this word is very tangibly for some of us a, a wake-up call that we are going, 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 never resting, never trusting. And we've thought that it was just because we're really hardworking and it's because we maybe don't trust you like we should. Maybe for some, you, you mean to really prick our conscience because we have fallen into a bad habit. Grumbling, grumbling, grumbling. Maybe for others to hear it or maybe it's just bubbling up in our heart and it's sort of quiet underneath the surface, just a, a surly, irritable attitude. And for others, Lord, we already knew this and we came tonight knowing how desperately we need good news. So lead us to Christ. Feed us on his body and on his blood. And as we feast on him in his word by your spirit, may we truly and eternally be satisfied. In his name we pray, amen.